This past Easter, or Good Friday, or for Good Friday, I wrote an article for Christ Hold Fast, a group, an organization that produces daily content focused on the scriptural distinction between law and gospel. The article was titled, Is God Angry With Us? The article was written after the COVID shutdown, and there were many questions about why so many bad things were, uh, were going on in the world. And one of the follow-up questions to why so many bad things were going on is, is God angry with us? In the article, I argued that God poured out his wrath on Jesus, that he didn't save any of his wrath for us, that Jesus took all of it. I, I argued that these things are not happening because God is mad at us, but because we live in a sinful world that is broken and is not functioning as intended, is not functioning as it was created to. I've had a few people reach out to me over Facebook in response to that article, some challenging, some questioning, some seeking more information, and I had a gentleman reach out this past week, and in his message he stated that the article addresses Christians, but not non-believers. What about the wrath to come, he asked me. What about the wrath of the Lamb? For me, it was an excellent, challenging, and timely question. For our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 14. We'll start by reading the first six verses in which we will see in disturbing detail the wrath of Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 to 14, we read, or 1 to 6, sorry, we read the word of the Lord. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Thus ends the first portion of our reading. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Isaiah has taken the position of a watchman at the city gates. He's up on a tower and, and, and he's looking out with a watchful eye for the enemy. And through the haze, through the fog, he sees a figure approaching the city. Who is this? He asks. Who is coming from Edom? Now Edom is the nation founded by Esau, Jacob's brother. And Edom was a long-standing enemy to God's people. And the city Basra was its capital. Now, Edom hated Israel so bitterly that in the prophetic worldview, that nation became more than a nation. It became the epitome of malice towards God and his people. 
So Edom represents humanity at its worst. It represents a humanity that despises God, a humanity that pursues earthly joys, a humanity that persecutes the people of God because of their loyalty to him. And the figure approaching the gates, the figure coming from Edom, is returning from reaping destruction. Isaiah wonders if he has been treading on the wine grapes, if the man had been stomping on grapes, for his clothes were stained a deep, dark red But it is not grapes that have stained his clothing, but blood. Instead of crushing grapes beneath his feet, he crushed nations, trampling them in his anger, stomping them in his wrath, and spattering his garments with their blood. Isaiah is watching, receiving a vision of the second coming of Jesus. For we see this imagery again in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, where we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now this is not the Jesus that we have grown accustomed to seeing in the Gospels and in Scripture, right? This is not the Jesus that society tells us loves and embraces all manner of sin. We're used to seeing a calm, loving, gentle teacher, the man who ate with those society despised, the man who healed the sick, who who cast out the demons, and who raised the dead. There was that one instance, right, where his anger surfaced and he flipped some tables at the temple. But he is known more for calming the wind and the waves and feeding the 5,000. He is not so much known as the man who is angry as he is the lamb who was slain. Beware the wrath of the lamb. Why the wrath? Where does it come from? In our text, we see it carried out against Edom, against the enemies of God's people, against those who live according to their own standards, those who pursue earthly joys, those who despise God. Is that what it takes for his wrath to be called down upon us? He who took the wrath of God fully, Jesus who drank from the cup fully, is he now venting the wrath on those who do not follow his will, who do not submit completely and willingly to his teaching? Though as Christians, or as a Christian, my residence is in the city of God, the city from whose walls Isaiah watches the approaching of the blood-spattered warrior. Though this is where my citizenship is, I have spent more than my fair share of time in the land of Edom. I have spent more time than I want to admit to or confess to pursuing my own agendas, pursuing the joys of this world when I should have been praising and worshiping God and living my life within the guidelines and instructions of the city of God. These guidelines and these instructions, they are good for me. They are beneficial for me. They help me live a deeper and more fulfilled life. But so many times I have thought that I 
knew better than God. Thought that my way, my wants, my desires were better for me than his. And so I have dallied and dawdled along the streets of Edom, pursuing not God's plan for my life, but my own. There is not a person drawing breath who can say that they have never walked the streets of Edom. That they have never pursued their own agenda over God's. There is not a person alive who can truthfully say that they have never sinned. For to say it would itself be a lie and be added, and just be adding one more sin to the list. Should we not also be punished for our time spent outside the city of God? We have not followed Jesus' lead, instruction, or mission perfectly. Should we not also receive the wrath of the Lamb? Again, why was this wrath poured out? The reason for the wrath of the Lamb, the essential sin that will spatter your blood on His robe at the second coming, is your rejection of His love. Your rejection of His love. Yes, Jesus wants us to follow his teachings, to listen to his instructions, to hide his word in our hearts and obey what he has called us to do. Absolutely, he desires, he demands all of that. And because he knew that we couldn't do it, because God knew that as imperfect individuals, we could never do anything perfectly. We could never meet the standard of his holiness. We needed help. We needed someone else to make a way for us to have a relationship with God, to have the relationship that he desires us to have. And so to enable this deep relationship, God sent Jesus to take all of the sin of the entire world upon his shoulders. All of those times that we wandered and dawdled, being entertained on the streets of Edom, God sent Jesus to take all of that sin, to take responsibility for it, to take all of the shame and the guilt that accompanies it. And to die for it, one time for all time, so that the sin that kept us from God would no longer be the obstacle that kept us from relationship with Him. God poured out all of His wrath for all of that sin onto His Son Jesus. And there on the cross, in our place, God abandoned Him. And there on the cross, in our place, Jesus died. But then He rose again. And he defeated sin and death, and through faith in him, through belief in the work of Jesus, in our need of it, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When we repent of our sin and confess our need, we are forgiven. And when God looks at us, he does not see the depth and the filth of our sin, but instead see the righteousness of Christ that we have been given through faith. This is the love of God and the love of Christ for us on full display. And it is the rejection of this work of love for us that receives the wrath of the Lamb. This morning we read a depiction of the wrath of Jesus carried out on those who do not believe they needed his saving work in the first place. It is not the sin that caused Jesus to destroy Edom. He took their sin and he paid for it just as he took and paid for the sin of those who believe. No, it was not the sin, it was the rejection of the sacrifice. It was the belief that they did not need to fear God in His wrath. It was that they did not desire a relationship with God. They rejected and despised Christ's work on the cross. And it is that rejection, the rejection of the ultimate act of love on their behalf, that brings down the wrath of the Lamb. As I wrestled through this text this week, I was brought into a deeper awe of Jesus 
and all that he did on my behalf, on our behalf. To see how he responds to those who reject his work gives me a deeper picture, a clearer picture of all that he went through for me. At this point in our text, the the tone changes dramatically. And I believe that it is out of this awe, the awe that comes as we gain ever so slightly a deeper understanding of all that Christ has done for us and all that it cost him. We can't grasp it fully. But as we come to understand it a little more clearly, we respond in the way that Isaiah does as we continue in our text this morning. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 to 14. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and his many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who set his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand? Who divided the waters before them to gain to himself everlasting renown? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make yourself a glorious name. Our text goes from bloodshed to worship in the space of a breath. Isaiah goes from witnessing the destruction of Edom to praising God for his provision and mercy and protection. It is essential that we live in awe of God. That we live in awe at the wrath of the Lamb For the wrath of the Lamb gives us insight into how much our sin cost him. So often our focus is on the great work of Christ, the grace that has been poured out over us. We talk about the the, the cross and Christ's death so much that in some ways I think that we can become numb to the depth of Christ's sacrifice. Sometimes talking about something over and over again can reduce its importance in our mind and can cause us to even take advantage of it. When we refuse to even glance at the depths of what Christ's work cost him, when we are not resting in the awe of the expanse of God's love for us, we are primed to abuse grace. When we hear so much about the grace of God, a grace that cannot be earned, our sinful hearts look to immediately jump at a loophole. We think, hey, if our works don't earn us a spot in God's kingdom, and if God is going to forgive us for what we do wrong, why should I try to be good? Why should I do what he asked me to? If grace is real and forgiveness is real, then I'm just going to take advantage of that and live the life that I want to live now. In our sinfulness, we recognize the benefits of grace, or as we recognize the benefits of grace, it is our natural reaction to abuse it. 
Now, that does not mean that we should stop emphasizing grace. Just because repetition can cause us to value something less doesn't mean that the thing actually loses value. It means that we value it less, not that it is worth less. Grace will never lose its value. It is not the proclamation of grace that needs to change. We don't need to stop proclaiming grace because grace might be abused. It is the abuse that needs to change. It is our heart conditions that need to surrender to the will, guidance, and instruction of God. But we struggle with that, don't we? So did the Israelites. As we see in our text this morning, in verses 7 to 9, Isaiah writes about the compassion and the love that God lavishes on His people. He writes about how God saves the people. And then in verse 10, we read, Yet they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So He turned and became their enemy, and He Himself fought against them. In spite of all the fantastic things that God was doing for them, they still rebelled and wounded Him. And we are no better. In spite of the wonderful grace that God has poured out over us, we turn around and abuse it. We dilly and daddly and dawdle down the streets of Edom. And we ignore the instruction that is given to us. And we hurt him in our disobedience and we wound him in our abuse of the grace that has been given us. And so God turns us over to discipline that we might recognize where we have fallen, that we might repent Confess and be forgiven that we might put our feet once more upon the narrow path. And I love how our passage this morning continues. Isaiah calls to the Lord to remember. He writes of how the people recall the the days of old and the promises kept, the provision that had been provided. They call to the Lord to remember. And the Lord remembers. He will never forget us. He remembers us with purpose and with love, with intention. He forgives us with vigor and with passion. This is our God. This is our Savior. As I wrestle against my old nature and my desire to abuse the grace that has been given me, this passage, this display of the wrath of the Lamb brings home to me just how much our sin cost Jesus. Passage like this one helped me Bring home for me just how much God desires us to follow Him, to be in relationship with Him, and just how much that relationship cost Him. The cost of the gift of grace was so great that when it is scoffed at, when it is rejected, when it is mocked, the only recourse is destruction. Let us rest in our awe of the One who is able to bring such destruction. As we recognize His power and His ability, let our awe push us to obey Him. As we see how much grace cost Him, let the price encourage us to run from our abuse of grace. Let it increase our gratefulness for Christ and His sacrifice. I continue to be struck by the words of Jesus in the first part of our text this morning. There He is, blood-spattered clothing, walking away from the battlefield. And Isaiah asks, who is this? To which Jesus responds, It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. What a picture. Let us run to the one who is capable of destruction, but is mighty to save. Who desires to save us. Who longs to save us. 
Let us run with abandon to the arms of Christ, for our God saves. What a fantastic, wonderful, gracious, loving, and powerful God we serve. Amen.